0: In the recent case Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down new Texas regulations for abortion clinics. But although the ruling turns the tide against certain kinds of abortion restrictions passed by many state legislatures, more challenges to women's reproductive rights are sure to come. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alta Charo, a professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor Shaw has written a perspective article about the whole woman's health decision and its implications. Professor Shaw, the Texas law required doctors providing abortions to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals and required abortion clinics to meet the space and personnel standards of surgical services. Were these new tactics in the abortion wars, and have they been successful? Have they limited abortion access in other states?
1: These are not new tactics. They are so-called trap laws, and they've been enacted across the United States. Indeed, we've got something like 300-plus laws of various types that are specifically designed to make it unlikely that an abortion clinic can maintain its license status in a state and, as a result, simply limit the number of clinics available to women.
0: You write in your article that the whole woman's health decision signals what you say is a refreshing willingness to test the law's justifications against its actual facts. So what kinds of factual evidence did the court consider in this case that it hasn't been considering in the past?
1: Well, to answer that, if I may, I'd like to back up just a little bit. The courts will generally be fairly deferential to legislatures that make formal findings of fact. And this is really an issue about the proper division of responsibility between courts and legislatures. But, of course, neither institution is free of problem, not the least of which is a lack of expertise in some of these areas. And, of course, there's always the concern about partisanship, particularly in legislatures. Despite that, if the evidence tends to be somewhat disputed and the legislature makes a finding of fact, the courts tend to be deferential. What happened here is that the Texas legislature did not make formal findings of fact and there was not just a dispute over whether or not these measures actually help women and their health, but there was a completely overwhelming amount of evidence that these provisions not only didn't help women, but actually hurt women and were an obstacle to getting proper health care. And so this was a time when the court finally said, yes, we have the privilege of stepping in, looking to see whether or not particularly laws that burden a constitutionally protected right are justified by the claimed benefits of enacting the law.
0: You point out that the court didn't explicitly consider the arguably true intent of the Texas regulations, which was not to protect women's health, but was to restrict access to abortion. Why do you think the court didn't go in that direction?
1: Well, one can never be sure what's going on in the minds of the justices, but keep in mind that this was a tricky decision and that any attempt to ascribe motivations to the legislature would mean one would have to ascribe that motivation pretty much to every single person who voted for these measures. That's a big step to take. And since the evidence was so overwhelmingly convincing that these measures not only did not help women's health but actually hurt their health, the court didn't feel the need to go into this messier area of divining motivation. It's worth noting, though, that they can and will sometimes do that. In an unrelated area, recently the court had a decision about certain rules about election law and voting that were adopted in North Carolina. And in that case, where the court looked at the effect of those laws, It actually did say these are clearly motivated by trying to suppress minority voter turnout. In fact, it called those measures surgically precise in the way in which they targeted those communities. The court could have done this in this case, but I suspect because the topic is so difficult within the court that there wasn't enough of a majority to go down that road.
0: In the case, the court did create a test for whether regulations place an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. Given that, what sorts of laws might be struck down in the future with that test?
1: Well, the court does have a test for what is an undue burden. It's simply that it's been changed now with this decision, because up until now, they looked pretty much only at the degree to which a law was making it difficult to exercise your constitutional right. What they did in Whole Woman's Health, which was an important step, was they then asked, what's the purported benefit? Because an obstacle might be considered an appropriate burden if it accomplishes an important goal, a compelling goal. So it's now a balancing test, which it wasn't before. Now, when one asks, how might this affect what is coming down the road? To the extent that we're talking about women's health, we have many states with a variety of rules very much like these, having to do with admitting privileges and surgical facilities. We also have rules about the kind of information that doctors are required to recite often information that includes misinformation, often it involves offering or even forcing some kind of ultrasound imagery upon a woman to deter her from having an abortion, and all of these are now going to be subject to some degree of scrutiny. Texas, by the way, in reaction to this decision, has already now moved forward to tighten up just those kinds of rules, so we'll see if a challenge is brought in that state again.
0: Another potential challenge, and you argue this may be the next, to abortion rights will probably involve one of the attempts that have been made to restrict late-term abortions on the basis of the fetus's ability to feel pain. How likely do you think a challenge like that would be to succeed?
1: I think that one's going to be trickier. And it's here that I think it is important that the court, in fact, does look at motivation as it did in those voting rights cases. Here's why. The assertions about fetal pain have been around for decades. There are fewer than a half a dozen professionals who claim that fetal pain is experienced as early as 20 weeks, but the overwhelming weight of medical evidence and of statements from professional societies like the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has been that it's not possible, it's not physically possible for fetuses to feel pain until much, much later, we're talking 28th, 29th week of gestation. But because there is this claimed dispute, a dispute that is similar in its contours to the one over the DNX procedures that were at the heart of the so-called partial birth abortion decisions, we're looking at a situation where the court could say, well, medical evidence is disputed, just like that earlier case. Overwhelming medical evidence was that there are certain procedures you need occasionally, but the court said, no, there's a couple of doctors who say it's never needed, and we're going to go with the legislature's finding that it's never needed. Same thing could happen with fetal pain. So if the court is reluctant to take a close look at the evidence, whenever there's some claim that it's disputed within the professional community, then it is going to be even more important that they look at the motivation for these laws. Are they really motivated simply to try and undercut Roe versus Wade? We have more than a dozen states now that have passed restrictions on abortion from 20 weeks onward. And it's just a setup for a new challenge that will go all the way to the Supreme Court on the Roe versus Wade standard.
0: So do physicians have a role in combating those claims?
1: physicians are an important voice, but here it may even be more the physician researcher who's going to be the most definitive because this is really a question of understanding how the embryo and the fetus develop over time during gestation, when certain neurological structures develop, and when there is a capacity for experiencing things. The layperson can look at a video that shows a fetus moving in response to a stimulus and conclude that the fetus, quote-unquote, feels it. But feel is an emotional phenomenon, not just an autonomic nervous reaction. And so this is where the researchers need to be able to provide a clear and definitive explanation about what goes on at different stages of gestation and what the capacity of the body and the brain really is.
0: Finally, you mentioned Zika in your article and its effects on fetal development and the fact that that's led to recent debate in Latin America and the United States about abortion. What do you expect to see happen in Florida, other states that are affected by Zika, in terms of efforts to restrict or to protect
1: abortion? I think that the Zika virus is going to drive a wedge in the solidarity within the community of people opposed to abortion rights. The reason is that the first time we have the birth of a child on the continental United States who is suffering from the effects of microcephaly, we're going to have people who ordinarily are very uncomfortable with abortion rights nonetheless clamoring to give people the option to terminate these pregnancies. Trouble is, you don't know whether or not the fetus is going to be affected until very late in gestation. And that's exactly the same time at which a lot of states are making abortion virtually impossible or trying to make it actually illegal by virtue of the 20-week limits, the fetal pain statutes that require fetal anesthesia, which many clinics are not set up to give. All of those statutes are going to run directly into the ordinary human sympathy for people who don't want to face the birth of a child with such profound deficits. And that is going to strain that particular political alliance. Now, the Zika virus, because it is going to be more prevalent in areas that have higher rates of mosquito infestation, is likely to be present in places like Florida, like Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi. And these are, by the way, the same states that have been passing some of the most onerous laws trying to prevent women from obtaining abortions in their second trimester. Indeed, they're already passing laws having to do with very common procedures claiming that those two should be made illegal. And so we are heading for a real conflict here between people who are trying to shut down second trimester abortion and people who are now seeing, again, a very strong need for it.
0: Thank you, Professor Charo.